0: in this special edition of radio sustain we'll look at some of the key issues in the u.s farm bill which sets u.s food and farm policy for the next five years the farm bill has a lot to say about what kinds of food are grown in the united states and how they are grown During the debate over the 2007 Farm Bill, big agribusiness companies, family farm advocates, environmentalists, local food supporters, and the public health community have all weighed in. In July, the House of Representatives passed its version of the Farm Bill. Now, the Senate is writing its version of the Farm Bill, with the final version expected to be completed by the end of this year. To find out more about the Farm Bill, we sat down with four experts, Dr. David Wallenga, Dr. Darrell Ray, Dennis Olson and Dr. Dennis Keeney. Dennis Keeney is a senior fellow at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. He is the co author of the paper A Fair Farm Bill for Conservation and has been following conservation programs in the Farm Bill since the 1970s. We sat down with Dennis to learn more about how Farm Bill conservation programs work and what's being debated in the 2007 Farm Bill.
1: We tend to think these things, uh, these these bills, just sort of happened the last few years, but really, you think of the start of the soil conservation service back in the Dust Bowl days, and in that time of uh, our funding, we actually put more money on a real dollar basis into conservation than we do now. It's just uh, there's a lot more things to spend the money on. And then we sort of dropped away from spending money on conservation to the, in the federal government programs, went much more to production in the 70s and overproduced rather strongly in response to price signals that weren't there. And uh, so we ended up really needing conservation again. And that was pretty well recognized by 1980 or so when they had some inklings of conservation programs. And by 1985 then, with the the strong lobbying of a number of conservation and and, uh, sustainable agriculture groups, we were able to get the government to recognize that there was a need for uh, something Beyond what we have now. So we really got going in 1985. Um, the Conservation Security Program, which is very important, was put in, and then a number of other things like the EQUIP, which helps with the livestock waste and some of those things.
0: So it seems like <clears throat> the conservation programs are kind of divided into uh, what's called the Conservation Reserve Program, where we take <clears throat> land out of production, and then other programs that encourage best practice. Is that a,
2: a That's
1: more or less it. Yeah, we've got the set aside programs, which which were and have been very successful, uh, and they were able to look at the land that really shouldn't have been row cropped anyway, put it into much more sustainable grass and and uh, trees and whatever, and really save the soil. But that only can go so far. And also, it's it's a, a program while it's got very quantifiable benefits in terms of wildlife and whatever, doesn't answer some of the needs that. Uh, people are concerned about in terms of food production. We knew that land was gonna to continue to be used for agriculture not, the set-aside programs are not going to last, were not gonna go much further. And so uh, they started working really on the concept of rewarding farmers for doing the right thing. In the past, we've rewarded farmers through to some of the programs that had been doing the wrong thing to do the right thing. But the Conservation Security Program went a step further and rewarded farmers for doing the right thing in the first place. And uh, so you didn't have to be a bad guy to get bailed out, if you will. This was a very important concept.
0: is the director of the Food and Health Program at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. He's helped to organize a letter from the public health community to members of Congress, making the case that the Farm Bill should also be a healthy food bill.
3: In healthcare, we know that what people eat is really important to their health, and the Farm Bill is the one huge piece of legislation that more than any other determines what Americans eat and how much of it they eat. What the, What the Farm Bill does is that it puts in place a series of incentives that drive uh, farmers in the US to overproduce many of the kinds of foods that we're already overeating. Uh, And what I'm talking about primarily are, are things like corn and soybeans, which because they're so abundant and so inexpensive, have spurred food companies to refine them make them into corn syrup and soy oil and then to put those in the huge array of high calorie nutrient poor foods that really are some of the most prominent foods in our supermarkets today for instance in the school environment there's a program to get more fresh fruits and vegetables into schools but it's been underfunded uh, vastly underfunded um, and also it can't meet the demand that schools have for those foods The second thing that the Farm Bill could do is to uh, really support the farmers who want to be producing different kinds of crops and healthier crops, but maybe aren't getting the assistance they need or uh, help in transitioning to grow crops they're not familiar with. And then third, um, the way that we're making a lot of these crops are so destructive, not only nutritionally but in terms of the health of communities and the environment. And so what we really need in the Farm Bill are policies that help farmers produce in ways that are healthy for everybody.
1: Still Can't regret my bad sin, fool, my
0: double Dr. Darrell Ray is an agriculture economist and director of the Agriculture Policy Analysis Center at the University of Tennessee. He's testified before Congress numerous times on the Farm Bill. We sat down with Dr. Ray to find out more about proposals to reform Farm Bill commodity
2: programs. Each farm bill starts out with a specific set of economic circumstances that are that are uh, before us, and also the the kinds of programs that we've had in the past. So there's always some inertia with regard to the programs, and then uh, the economic situation oftentimes will dictate you know what the problems are and and how it's. Um, how they're they're viewed this go around uh, we happen to have very high prices now that was also true when we had the nineteen ninety six farm bill. Uh, we had high prices, but it didn't they didn't last long. That was due to exports this time it's due to ethanol and uh, there is a lot of euphoria I would say about corn prices, crop prices in general because they see the ethanol demand increasing and continuing to increase through time. So the question is, how will that influence the debate? At this point in time, uh, it's pretty fluid. Um, We have something that's been passed in the House at the time that we're recording this, and um, nothing has come out of the Senate and the administration has a bill, but it's hard to tell in conference where it all could end up.
0: Could you explain the positives and potential limitations of the revenue insurance proposal currently
2: being considered? There are a couple of things I would say. Um, One is that um, if you're talking about a revenue insurance approach that uses national yields it would be easy for farmers to get the idea that they're protected on the yield side far more than they really are because farmers yields would vary a whole lot more than than the national and if if uh, you're in illinois or somewhere and um, in a state that does produce a lot of the corn while your yield might follow the national yield but if you're uh, in another area of the country uh, you could have a very poor yield the rest of the country could have a good yield and you wouldn't be protected so I think it's easy to overpromise on on the um, the yield side as far as that being a protection and of course the closer the yield is measured to the farm the less of that so if, if you if you measure the yield at the county level uh, you're more likely to have uh, more likely to be correlated highly with your own farm less so at the state but least of all at at the national level. Now, we have revenue proposals that have been talked about using each of those, national, state, and and county. So, I think it's important not to overpromise about the yield impact because it may not be quite as good as, as it would seem. The other thing I would say is that if you're using average prices from the past as determining the revenue, that's fine if prices are level, Uh, basically and fluctuating some or going up but if they're going down what you're doing is you're ratcheting your protection down just as the prices go down because you're going to be taking averages of lower and lower prices and so the revenue target uh, target is going to be uh, declining as well so I think that those those are the two things that I would that I would uh, caution people to, to think seriously about now the way to, to solve each of those, I mean, there are ways to do it. You could use the county level yield, which would help, and then use crop insurance for the for the hail that happens to hit only your farm, for example. For the price one, why you could use a fixed target price that doesn't vary, or you could use some percentage of the cost of production or something like this. So there are ways of handling it. But uh, I just think it's an it's it's kind of an information and education thing to understand exactly how
0: it would work for you. How does increased demand for biofuels affect the supply and demand equation in the farm economy?
2: I think that we are in a very precarious situation right now because we have um, very low stock levels projected into the future. If you take a look at the the 10-year projections that the USDA or FAPRI does, the stock levels for corn are very low. Uh, We happen to have a good year this year in terms of, of yields. And uh, we can't always assume that we're going to get those kind of yields. And if we don't, we don't have any, any, any backup here in terms of stock. Um, so I, for me, I think that this is with all of the ethanol demand we're talking about. If we want to protect our exports and protect our livestock producers, we need to be ready for a low yield. And we haven't had one for a while, and so we kind of forget that that happens, but it does. And so I think we should have a grain reserve that we put in place probably during a year like this when we have high production and have uh, yields that are above trend and put it away so that it's available if we don't get those kind of yields further on. Besides that... You know, we don't, we don't want the price to fall for corn too much because we gotta keep that acreage in next year. Cause uh, in fact, we need as much acreage next year or the year, year after even with trend level yields to, to handle the ethanol. So if we get a bumper crop, it's not really even in our best interest as a society to have it go too low. It's obviously not in farmer's best interest. Um, we, we like to get excited about those demand increases, but they don't always last.
0: No need for Russian crocodiles,
1: crocodiles. When I fall in love, I get dizzy.
0: Dennis Olson is a senior policy analyst at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy and has followed the progress of the last four farm bills. We talked with Dennis about a proposed competition title in the Senate version of the Farm Bill that would attempt to rein in the market power that a few corporations hold over agriculture markets.
4: There was actually a... a antitrust package in the 2002 Farm Bill that was offered, and some of the pieces of that actually passed the Senate floor, and um, some of them made it out of committee. Some of them, most of them didn't make it out of committee, and so they're coming back again to try to pass some of those key provisions. Um, Probably the biggest reason that we need Congress to act is because Many studies have shown that the U.S. Department of Agriculture is not enforcing the laws that are on the books Is number one. And then number two, because of their bad enforcement of these laws, we've had some really bad court cases that have now taken some good laws and and we've had some bad court cases that have come down that have made it even harder to enforce those laws. And so I think one of the big reasons we need to do that is for Congress then to step in and say, no, antitrust enforcement is important. And this is these are specific steps to reassert Congress's will, which is that we should have antitrust enforcement to protect farmers and ranchers against unfair manipulation of markets right now there are like in the beef packing uh sector there are four companies that control over 80 percent of the slaughter capacity in the united states so when two of those companies are are owning their own feedlots, that's a huge chunk of the market and and when that's when that that many animals is not being priced on the market and it's just basically be get being given to, you know up the supply chain to themselves in, in essence uh there's no price so that demand isn't reflected back into the market and the remaining cattle their price is lower because they're not having to uh, meet that demand in an open and free market. And back in the the mid-1990s, late 1990s, Bob Peterson of IBP was one of the three biggest packers. You had Cargill and ConAgra who were owning their own feedlots and selling these cattle to themselves. And Bob Peterson of IBP didn't have; they didn't have any of their own feedlots. And you know, he was for the packer ban because he didn't have any feedlots. And he actually said, "If the government doesn't do something about it, I will." And he came up with what were called these formula forward contracts. And basically what they do is they go to cattle feeders and some of the the biggest and the best cattle that are around and basically schmooze these guys and say, look, you have the best cattle around. We're going to give you a 3% bonus for those cattle because consumers want high quality meat. So that sounds pretty good if you're an independent feeder and you're you're facing this competition from Cargill and ConAgra. So you go to sign this contract, the only problem is there's no fixed amount in the contract. What that means is there's a, it's a formula that's based on the marbling and the high qualities that they want to grade your meat on and all that, but there's no fixed amount and, and how they do it is they say, they say we're going to give you 3% over the average cash price for the first week of November two months from now. The problem is, is that there's two things that only the packer knows. One is how many other contracts like your own is going to be determined by that first week of November's average cash price? And number two, how many other contracts will be delivered to their packing plants during that first week that they already have lined up? And IBP will just stay out of the market because they have cattle coming in from other secret contracts meeting their demand in their packing plant and the price collapses as much as 40% so much for your three percent bonus and so one of the reforms is just to say it doesn't even say you can't do these contracts you can still have the formula but it's got to be based on a fixed amount the day the contracts entered into and a second condition is they have to allow other packers an opportunity to bid for that contract to bid for those cattle and if you get those two things then those other packers could bid the price up.
3: For information on the 2007 Farm Bill, visit AGObservatory.org. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Monday, October 8, 2007. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. The music on the program is Tall Fiddler by Deo. Ophelia's Song by Pan and Someone Turning by Arctic. I'm Tyson Acker in Minneapolis. Thanks for listening.